be seated. And please turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1. For this rapidly passing Advent season, we are walking through the first chapter and a half of the Gospel of Luke. There are lots of verses in these chapters, 80 in this first chapter. We're on our third sermon through the passage, and we have seen uh, the scenes unfold in a beautiful way. It's a great reminder preparing us for this uh, Advent season into Christmas, this time of reflection upon the incarnation of our Lord, uh, the beginning of His uh, work on earth to save us from our sins. Um, you remember the first scene, the story of Gabriel visiting Zechariah uh, with the news that he would give his wife a pregnancy, John would be born from her, but of course you remember, as godly as he was, and he was a solid man in the faith, he had a lapse in faith when he heard the word of God come from Gabriel, and he didn't believe at that moment. And so that didn't thwart God's plan, it never does, uh, but God brings discipline to him by making him unable to speak for the whole of the pregnancy. This is a man who you know, made his living in ministry speaking and communicating as a priest, and he would not be able to for those nine months. And uh, the next scene is Gabriel announcing to Mary that she would bear the Messiah. And she has a different response. Uh, she believes this. Uh, she trusts this word. In fact, she goes and sees her older cousin, Elizabeth, who is expecting six months into her pregnancy at that point. And she rejoices um, with Mary over what God had done and showering his grace on them as individuals, but then what it meant for the people of God as a whole and really to the world so that everyone would have this message of the gospel available to them and God would call his people from the nations, not just Israel, to himself, uh, to the Messiah. It's a beautiful picture as it develops, um, this drama as it unfolds. And now we pick up uh, at the time, it's three months later now, and Elizabeth is ready to give birth. And so follow as I read Luke 1, starting at verse 57. As always, I remind you, this is the inspired Word of God. Therefore, we can trust it wholly, and it is authority to us. This is what we need for our life and for our faith. So hear God's holy word, starting at verse 57 of chapter 1. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, 
the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we join with Zechariah in a song of praise for your fulfilled promises through Christ. You announce these promises through your servant John, and Jesus completely fulfills them all. Your mercy to us is tender, and even your discipline we see through the life of Zechariah. Even through this, you show grace. Lord, please shine the light of your Holy Spirit upon this portion of your word so that we might be compelled to live differently as a result. Please do your work of sanctification in the life of your people so that your glory might shine through us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Here we are moving through this wonderful story. The significance of John cannot be overstated. Um, He is a fulfilling link in the biblical record. The scriptures in the Old Testament over hundreds and hundreds of years lays out little inklings of what Messiah uh, would look like and what he would do. Um, But there was a period of silence, almost 400 years, from the last prophet in the Old Testament till John comes on the scene. John was forecasted in the Old Testament to be the voice crying in the wilderness to make the way for Christ clear, to alert the people of God who had fallen asleep spiritually to some degree that it, the time had come. Jesus would now come. And so John has a very important purpose, and we see it laid out through his father, Zechariah, who personally goes through all sorts of difficulty in this process. And we see it work its way out in front of us. Salvation announced by John, and it comes through Christ. I want you first to see something. It's brief, but I don't want us to miss it because it connects back to something that happened between Elizabeth and Mary when they shared in the joy of the Lord for the grace that had been shown to them. You see another example of shared joy between believers over God's mercy. This is more than an example to us. I think it's something that should compel us as believers to practice the same kind of thing. Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. This is an amazing thing. A woman who is far too old to have children had a baby. Verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, maybe we practice this like we should. I don't know. It's a challenge to us. Do we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? We should. It's a practice that's evidenced over and over again among the people of God. And early in Luke's gospel, he displays this reality. Remember, Elizabeth shown the grace of God to have John. And beyond that, to be the one who would bear the, the forerunner to Christ, who would bless the people of God then and then the people of God to come. Huge act of God's grace upon Elizabeth. Mary 
has given God's grace to bear Messiah. And when they come together, there's this acknowledgement of the grace of God that's been showered upon them, and they rejoice, and they worship God. And I suggested to you last week, and I say it again, that really should be every meeting that believers have, especially for worship. We come together as people who have received the undeserved favor of God because of Christ. That unifies us despite all of our differences. That brings us together, and we should just give praise to God every Sunday for sure, but then in other opportunities that you have. And not just for our salvation, for the manifold ways in which God blesses us. And that's what you have here. The neighbors saw how God had given her this child, and they knew there was something more to it, and we see that unfold. They heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. I really suggest that we take this to heart, that we would practice this kind of a sharing of rejoicing together, praising God together. So when we come together to pray, we pause to give praise to God. You know, we have prayer requests, then God answers them. We ought to be praising God for the way he answers them. Sometimes he answers them by giving us contentment with whatever his will is, without even changing anything. But we should talk about that together, share that together. And here's the thing. There will be some times where you're down, you're out, you're not feeling like praising God. And you hear other people praise God for something that's happening in their life, and it it lifts you up. It brings us collectively into a place of proper perspective about rejoicing. Not all of us will have things going well, but some of us will, and we should share it, and then that will change between us. It's a communal action that can be difficult in a day and age where we don't see each other as much. Use whatever avenue you have to do like what we see happen here. Their neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. I've referred to J.C. Ryle several times uh, through this sermon series, this short series. I've relied upon him for some thoughts and ideas, and I want to share what he says so wonderfully about this practice between uh, the people and Elizabeth, but even for us to consider ourselves. Ryle writes, how much more happiness there would be in this evil world if conduct like that of Elizabeth's relations was more common. Sympathy in one another's joys and sorrows costs little, and yet it is, it is a grace of most mighty power. Like the oil on the wheels of some large engine, it may seem a trifling and unimportant thing, yet in reality it has an immense influence on the comfort and well-working of the whole machine of society. Just a touch of oil you don't think much of makes the whole thing run smoothly. Let that be the kinds of words in actions we have towards each other in rejoicing over God's great grace to us. Now, if you're like me, when you read a couple weeks ago about what happened to Zechariah, where he was struck mute, he couldn't speak, you knew that God was just for doing it, but you kind of cringe because you're like, man, that was tough on him. And I would have done this, I would have messed up probably worse. And so there's that kind of mixed feeling of God's right, but you feel for Zechariah. But what happens from this trial in Zechariah's life is beautifully displayed here. And I would suggest to you it translates to all of us in the hardships you experience. Uh, Sometimes God disciplines us for things, uh, for sin. Uh, He often puts trials in our lives, not for any particular discipline for sin, but to disciple us. Remember, discipline, disciple, those words are very close and they mean similar. To shift our ways of thinking and acting. God will put trials, will put afflictions, will put challenges in our lives. And he does so to produce fruit. And so we get to see some of this in poor Zechariah's life. I mean, nine months of not being able to speak, 
uh, over the matter of his son being born and having to think about really the one shot he got in the, in the temple with the lighting of the incense, and he blew it. Now, at the end of nine months, God brings great fruit from it. Now, let's look the whole of the episode because there are some interesting features that might be foreign to us in our thinking. Verse 59, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. Now, that would shock us if people showed up at our house after we had a child and said, hey, we're here. Now, this is part of not just the custom. This is the practice of the Jews to apply the sign of God's covenant of grace to their children. It started in the time of Abraham. Um, it was codified and more understood through the time of Moses for sure, but it, it's way before that. It's, it's a marker that uh, we are God's people, um, and it's, it's the same way we view baptism. This is the precursor to baptism. And so it's a special communal event that the whole community of faith watches and rejoice in and over because they recognize what God has done for them, and it's a response uh, to God's command that we apply this sign to our children. That's what they're doing. And so it was the eighth day they came about uh, to, to do this. Notice what it says next. That's the time when the child would be named. They would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are called this name. Now, many of you can relate with this if you come from families where the firstborn son is named after the father. That's my heritage. Um, That's pretty common in Sicilian families. And so um, I didn't think I needed to discuss that with Sherry. I, I just figured she, I didn't know she didn't know that. And so I remember the sonogram when we realized it, it was 19, 20 weeks into the pregnancy, we were having a boy. And we rejoiced. That, you know, it's fun to know what the sex is. It wouldn't have mattered. We would have rejoiced both ways. But it was a boy. So I'm thinking to myself, great, this is, this is a, you know, just thinking of that, that namesake and how we do it in our heritage. And I don't know how long went by. I'll get corrected after this, so I won't say how long. But it wasn't too long after we were talking about names for our first child who was a son. What are we talking about was my response. I mean, why are we having this discussion? I mean, are you serious? I mean, are you throwing out, she's throwing out, you know, Leonard or, that wasn't Leonard, but the point is, they weren't Italian names. I mean, none of them were Italian names. Um, and and it, it kind of shocked her how adamant I was. And it's just, it just went without saying, you name your firstborn son after, it's not just so much yourself, it's after your father before you. That's the way it generally would work. And that's how it was for all my cousins. That's how it is in our family. And like the idea of showing up, you know, at a family reunion, hey, this is Stuart. I mean, that would not have gone well in our family. She didn't understand that. So it had to be Anthony. Now, the deal we struck was I got to name the first one, and after that, it was her choice. Uh, but this is something that was true in the Jewish culture. You would name the firstborn son, especially your only son in the case of Zechariah, after him. But no, because Gabriel told them something else. And Gabriel told Zechariah this, and Elizabeth must have been told by the same writing tablet that's going to be John. And she says this, but they think she's mistaken. This can't be right. No, he shall be called John. So verse 61, they said to her, none of your relatives are named this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So apparently, he just not only could not speak, he couldn't hear. They're making signs. That's, that's the interesting feature of this. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. I don't want you to underestimate how powerful what he says here is. It's a big change for him. Uh, th- this is him showing that he has understood the lesson that was to be learned by his muteness, but he grasped 
what God was doing here. He evidenced his faith in this way. It may seem like a small thing, but it's a big fruit in what God was working in his life. And look at what happens immediately at verse 64. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. How beautiful this is. Remember the last words he spoke were? Challenging God's word. How can this be to Gabriel? The first words after this period of discipline or trial or difficulty, he speaks blessing God. He gets it. It's not a legalistic response. It's not like, oh, I don't want to get zapped again, so I'll say the spiritual thing. No, it just, it just came from him. When they talked about what name, it's going to be John. And then as soon as he could speak, he blesses God. That's what trials do in our lives when they're properly worked through, when we recognize why God has them in our, in our lives. We can't always know the reasons why they come to pass, but know they're there to grow your faith in God for fruit, for spiritual fruit. It was a Puritan writer who said, and I don't know which, sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. This is the way that God normally grows us. And it's so hard to hear that, especially right now I know if you're in a terrible time. I don't want to make slight of what you're feeling, what you're going through, but I do promise that you as a child of God, there's a purpose for this thing you're dealing with. There is a definite purpose. And fundamentally, it is to grow you in your trust of your Father who will never break his promises to you. It's a beautiful picture that we see displayed by this guy who messed up in the same chapter. And here he is speaking a blessing to the name of God. There was a reverence that also came over everybody when they saw this. So, so the fruit wasn't just to him and his faith. Everybody saw this transformation in him what had happened, what God was doing, what the word was. In verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors. Not scared, they were, they were in awe at what was going on here. They could tell God was working. And all these things, this whole episode and the details thereof, all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. That means they contemplated. They thought it over again. They talked about it. They, they drilled down on what it meant. They laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? This is an amazing story. Everything about this is amazing. What will, what will happen with this boy that's born to them? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Beautiful fruit of discipline here in the life evidenced of Zechariah is his mouth is open and he speaks this beautiful word of blessing. Ryle once again says, he shows that his nine months dumbness had not been inflicted on him in vain. He is no longer faithless but believing. He now believes every word that Gabriel had spoken to him and every word of his message shall be obeyed. Philip Ryken, who is speaking on the same passage or wrote on the same passage, said something similar that I share with you. The words on the tablet that Zechariah wrote, the words on the tablet showed that God had done a gracious work in Zechariah's life, bringing the old man to sure and certain faith. At first, Zechariah doubted, but God disciplined him in a way that taught him to trust. This is something God often does, and it is always a mercy when he does it. He uses the hard experience of suffering to teach us to trust in him. I know you don't want me to say this, and I don't like to say it, but he does do this often, in little ways more often than big ways, but he does them in our lives. That's the truth of, this, of the Christian life. Most of what we learn to tr- in, so far as trusting God is concerned comes through hard things, often because of our sin. Uh, that's just the reality of it. 
But as we recognize that and we grow deeper in our faith in him, it helps us to weather those things as they come up in life and helps us to help others when they deal with it as well. What comes next from Zechariah is an it's, it's all an inspired word we're reading. But we see in particular this blessing that Zechariah speaks. It's like the blessing that Mary spoke that's called the Magnificat where her soul magnifies the Lord and she speaks this beautiful kind of a psalm Here, something similar happens to Zechariah. And it's in response to the people saying, what will this child be like? The Lord is with him. What will will John be like? And Zechariah, it says in the text, speaks through the Holy Spirit in a special way. Verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. Blessed be the Lord. This is called the Benedictus, the blessing that he pronounces on the name of the Lord, which extends to his people. Now, I want you to notice something since we've seen this a few times already. In verse 67, the description of Zechariah. Look there with me. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is multifaceted. Um, It takes on different shades and forms depending on when it appears in God's timeline of redemptive history. The filling of the Holy Spirit, though, if we would look at it through the lens of, of Luke, helps us really grasp how important this is, especially as Jesus comes and after Jesus ascends and sends the Spirit, the, the purpose for this filling that happens among specially appointed people in Scripture. Now, to be clear, every believer has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit uh, as they come to faith. God actually regenerates you with his spirit and leaves his spirit as a deposit, sealing you. The sealing ministry, the indwelling ministry, the regenerating ministry, we all experience that. But the filling ministry is something that describes a special action of the spirit that helps the people of God at a certain time, especially, speak the word of God very boldly, understand the purposes of God and speak to that, or carry out some task that's very important. Our text again, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. But earlier, we heard in verse 15 of chapter 1, talking about John, he will be great before the Lord, Gabriel said, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Then earlier in the same chapter, verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. There's something heightened about what is being described, something God's going to do in a magnificent, supernatural way. The passage before us, Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit, then he speaks this word of benedictus or blessing. But later, Luke, writing in the book of Acts, describes when the Holy Spirit first comes to those believers assembled, And it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. This was a fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament, and a special ministry of the Spirit executes what God's will was. Later in the book of Acts, when Peter is preaching, Peter, who denied Christ, now on the other side of the resurrection, is a completely different person. He's not afraid of the Jews anymore, and he gets up. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke writes, said to them, rulers of the people, And elders, virtually all the people that had power over him if they wanted to kill him at that moment, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He's speaking of a miracle that happened to a man, showing the Spirit had come. And he was filled with the Spirit to speak in this way. In the same chapter, chapter 4, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Later in Acts 9, again, written by Luke, that's why I pointed out, uh, Ananias, a man was not to be confused with Ananias and Sapphira, but Ananias, a servant of God, went to speak to Saul, who became Paul. And remember, he was blind for a while, and they were still scared of Saul for good reason. He was killing Christians or overseeing the killing of Christians. Ananias, in Acts 9, Luke records, departed and entered the house, and laying his hand on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know what Paul went on to do, what God called him to do as he was filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 13, but Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. And he gets in the face of the of the powers of darkness filled with the Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit, a special ministry of the Holy Spirit equipping uh, in the Scriptures these people to believe the promises of God. We have the Spirit who indwells us and does many of the same things in us, but recognize then the importance of what comes from, uh, from Luke here in describing Zechariah. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and now he lays out what God was doing through this son now born to him, John. And he blesses God for what he had done. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Notice it's past tense in the English. It's like he already's done it. I mean, it's just a baby. How, is he re- how are they redeemed? Jesus had not been born yet, three more months. How is this that he speaks in the past tense like this? It continues, verse 69. And has raised us up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Well, he speaks in the past tense, as I mentioned, because it's, it's the past perfect tense in the Greek language. And what this means is it's, it's so sure to happen that we could speak as though it has. It's a prophetic certainty or future. And it's taking that prophetic language that the prophets would use or the psalmist would use and saying it's as good as done now that we've seen God bring this much about. He's not going to stop now. He's just, he is now initiated the plan that he had long said he went in an act, and now it, here it is. Now notice what it's described as. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Um, the horn is a symbol of power and strength. And if you would think of an animal in antiquity especially, like an ox who had horns, um, as an ox would move forward, it didn't need horns to bowl people over, but with the horns it was almost fear, fearsome. It would, it would come and it, would be, it could not be stopped. It's a description of the unstoppable nature of the salvation that God will bring as he, is exact, as he has enacted this process now. And so this is, in the filling of the Holy Spirit, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. He's connecting all those former prophecies now together, and that's what he says in verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Two things I want you to notice here. He is unifying the message of the prophets about how they would, how God would deliver his people through Messiah ultimately, who would be announced by his son. 
connected to this is the reality that for the Jewish person, they always thought in terms of their, their deliverance from oppression in their immediate time, whether it had been the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, whatever it be, the Romans in this case, that God would deliver them. But there is a deeper underlying deliverance that's always referred to together. Sometimes people want to separate them out. God's all about delivering people from the injustices of this time. God cares about that. But that will never happen until the light of the gospel shine on people. Now, we don't stop striving for that, but recognize that that kind of oppression, which God will ultimately relieve, uh, won't happen until the gospel's had its full work. But he works in tandem this way, and the people of Israel saw that and spoke in those terms, and that's what you see happening in the prophets, and that's what happens with Zechariah. Now, I thought, what verses should we go to to be reminded about what the prophets say about the deliverance of his people? We've all been studying Isaiah together, so we should all know those verses. But, you know, if you turn to Malachi, there's a lot of verses about deliverance there as well through Messiah. If you go to Hosea, they're there as well. You can go to uh, any of the prophets, Zephaniah for that matter, Jeremiah, of course. But I thought to myself, if I'm Zechariah, and I don't, this is not, I'm not saying this is for sure, but he definitely knew the Old Testament. And it makes sense that he'd be really familiar with his namesake, the prophet. Because Zechariah the prophet wrote 500 years before Jesus came. So that's 200 years after Isaiah, but 500 years before Jesus. And he's one of the last prophets of the Old Testament. Listen to what Zechariah said. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. I will strengthen the house of Judah. It's promise after promise about what God would do for his people. Zechariah the priest could be thinking of Zechariah the prophet, who, by the way, was one of the last prophets of the Old Testament to speak of the next prophet, John, his son. It's a beautiful coherence of how the biblical story works itself out. The Bible's not a bunch of disjointed things that got collected. It is a beautifully crafted by divine authorial intent to tell us a pure story of coherence that you can see God's covenant promises work out through. And you can have confidence because of what you see here on display. If what he did in the past has come true, and it has, you know what he says in the future will come true. And that is, again, the resounding assurance we have as we study this. And notice how he he goes into this, the issue of spiritual deliverance. So it's not just about them having relief from the Romans. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. What's his holy covenant here? The word covenant is used a lot in the Old Testament, and there are different covenants. Um, the Mosaic covenant they were living under for sure, um, the administration with the temple and the sacrifices and, and all of that. Uh, but there's something that that underlies all the covenants. It's God's grace. It's his commitment to save a people for himself. And that was manifested most clearly in time and space in the reference in verse 73 that we find. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Why is this important? He's not appealing to their being faithful to Moses. That's not what he's appealing to. He's appealing to the grace of God. You've got to save us by your grace, by your grace. And that's the only way he ever saves anybody. So the reference here is, is genius on Zechariah's part. He's not saying, Lord, save us because we've really followed the Mosaic Covenant wonderfully. 
Lord, save us because you promised you would through Abraham. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace and an appeal to it. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. And notice what this covenant is supposed to do in the life of God's people. He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him, God, without fear. The reason for deliverance from our enemies and our sin is so that we could serve God in purity and without fear. That's the reason. It's not just to save us from something. It's to save us to something. In holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. What a beautiful picture of God's grace working in the way that he prays, uh, blessing God's name for what he was going to do now as John was, was born and Jesus would be born. Reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How would he get that to happen? Through his covenant. Who is his covenantally faithful representative? Jesus. Through Christ, we then can live out what is said here in verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And that's what we look forward to in its ultimate fulfillment. Verse 76, he turns to his own child after praising God for his redemption and his deliverance, his grace, verse 76, and you, child, speaking now to his son, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the ways, his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Remember what he did? He gave, John came with the baptism of the forgiveness of sins. What did that mean? He was going to the Israelites primarily to remind them of what their prophets had said and to prepare them for Messiah's coming. That was his calling. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now he's referring to that light language that we've read in Isaiah, where the light would come and it would be Christ, and he was going to prepare the way for that light. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The passage concludes with a simple statement about John in verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. doesn't mean he lived in the woods the whole time. Uh, He took a Nazarite vow. He was a bit out of the society. Um, He just stayed out of the public limelight until it was time. You know, I was thinking about this Nazarite vow that that, that John the Baptist took and how similar it was to what was called upon for Samson. Listen to what is said about Samson at his birth. And the woman bore a son called Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manadan between Zorah and Eshtahol. Verse 80 of our passage. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This summary statement, verse 80 completes the narrative now to this point, linking John the Baptist to the Old Testament and now to what will come next. Um, John is, we leave this scene with John maturing, but not yet appearing publicly to take his prophetic role. Joel Green says of verse 80, this transition to the next text that we will read soon. With this summary, this summary statement, Luke clears John from the stage, at least for now. And with him, the characters through whom John has been introduced, Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
We don't see them again after this. This prepares for a return to the story of Jesus, which begins, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are compelled to praise your holy name when we consider the perfect coherence of your plan of salvation through Christ and your covenants. During this season of reflection on the incarnation of Jesus, please give us a deeper understanding and appreciation for what Zechariah sang concerning, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, our ultimate enemy, sin, we might serve you without fear, in holiness and righteousness before you all of our days, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond by turning to uh, 196 in our hymnals. We will stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Jesus.